0: You're listening to the Principal Meet Practice podcast from Singularity University. I'm Kyle Nell, and this season we're partnering with our friends at INSEAD to bring you deep conversations into the realities of managing through uncertainty. Each episode will feature an expert whose focus is on the theory behind a topic and a practitioner who is out on the front lines actively bringing these concepts to life. We'll cover topics from the future of retail to the education crisis and more. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to cover the future of retail with Patty Panoven, a professor of marketing at INSEAD, and Molly Hartney, who most recently served as the CMO and SVP of digital with Funco. We all know about the all too familiar retail apocalypse that led to the closure of many brick and mortar chains due to the 08 financial crisis and the e-commerce boom, but it's not over quite yet. Today, we'll talk about the shifts in consumer behavior, how retailers should cope with the current pandemic and how they can prepare for the future. We will dive into the theory side of the future of retail with guest Patty. Patty is a professor of marketing and the Unilever Chair Professor of Marketing at INSEAD, INSEAD Asia campus. His current research focuses on business opportunities and challenges in the developing economies, economic crises, and their implications, pricing, and supply chain management. Our second guest today, our special guest, is Molly Hartney. She's a practitioner who comes with more than 10 plus years of public and private sector experience, including senior leadership roles with both Funco and Lowe's. She's a results-driven executive leader known for scaling businesses quickly with a unique mix of driving strategy, building talent, and leveraging a customer-centric approach. And I can say, as somebody who's worked with her in different companies, Molly is a true leader and amazing. Thanks for being with us, Patty and Molly. Welcome, welcome. Patty, if it's okay, I'm going to start with you. So, you know, just diving right in, retail giants who were already floundering prior to the COVID pandemic, you know, J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, J.C. Penney, and there are many more, have all filed for bankruptcy within the past couple of months. As someone who's done a great deal of research on economic crises, what do you believe the future holds for both retailers and consumers? Will we ever return to normal? Or will there be a
1: new normal? That's a very interesting question that you ask, Kyle. Uh, it's a two-part question. So what I'm going to do is speak to the first part, which is about, you know, what are the implications in terms of what the future holds for consumers? Molly has a lot more experience on the retail part of it, so I'll let her speak to it. Uh, what I want to do is start off by making the point that crises are not new. I mean, there was a recent article that came out of the World Bank, I think, that cataloged the crisis that we experienced, and it runs into the hundreds, if not thousands, okay? So crises are not new. But, typically, for instance, when you look at past crises, and let me just pick an example. Take a look at the GFC. Consumer behavior actually changed in the midst of the GFC but then after a crisis what always happens is there is recovery and what you realized is a lot of consumer behavior that changed during the GFC went back to the way it was before. My feeling is what I'm seeing based on all that I'm reading and observing is this time it's going to be different in the sense that I think consumer behavior is not going to rebound the way it has done in the past and the difference that i'm seeing is the following okay i mean historically when we looked at the past customers had very very strong preferences for what is it that they wanted to buy and if it turns out they had to go through hoops to get to what they wanted to buy they would go through it because for them that product that brand made a huge difference what i'm seeing in the covid world is people are now beginning to say look I have preferences not just for what I want to buy. Increasingly, I have very strong preferences for how I want to buy, how I want to consume, and how I want to experience things. And it's gotten to the point where people's behavior now shows that if what you offer is not consistent with the way they want to buy, how they want to buy, how they want to consume, how they want to experience, what they are saying is, I don't care that much how great your product is. If it turns out those other things are not being delivered by you, I will not jump through all the hoops that I used to in the past. And this is evident in the sense that, you know, if you look at data points in terms of the switch that people have made overnight to e-commerce and m-commerce, and even segments that were historically very hesitant to do that, and the persistence that you've seen in those behaviors post-COVID. And what is interesting is many of these things are actually probably more emergent and more visible in the developing and the emerging markets. So for instance, in India, in China, in certain parts of Asia and certain parts of Africa, what you realize is a lot of consumer behavior has changed in the sense that consumers' preferences for how they want to buy has become as important as what they want to buy. And many of these countries have sort of recovered To a certain stage post-COVID and these behaviors are still persistent. So to me I think the question that you ask is a good one and my view is that the future in terms of consumer behavior is going to be different from what it was in the past and it's going to remain that way going forward. Yeah it's it's
0: interesting too you know at the time we're recording this today the U.S. announced that retail went up 17.7 percent month over month which was Way above what everyone, all the analysts have thought, and it just is always so interesting to me. You know, for how long people have been saying that retail is dead and dying, and you know, no one was going to do this or do that. It just seems to be so resilient. And so, I think what you're saying really rings true to me, which is that people really want to buy stuff, but the way that they do it is changing, and this is just speeding that up. Where would you say, just at a high level, I, mean, I said some of the ones that clearly have struggled and have filed for bankruptcy but this is clearly not the end. There's definitely a lot more that will. Who's doing it well? Who would you say is doing a good job?
1: Yeah, I think the two of you have a lot of experience with retail. you know, there's that wonderful phrase saying, at the end of the day, what you need for success in retail is the ability to pay attention to detail. And I think many of the companies that you mentioned that file for bankruptcy are actually guilty of being sleeping at the wheels. And many of the companies that you see that are doing well right now in these COVID times in developed economies as the developed economies are the people who have actually paid attention to detail and managed the detail as best as they could. I mean, what we all realize is even in good times, the success for a good retailer is the ability to manage working capital and do it smartly. Because the characteristics of retailers, look, this is one of the few industries where, you know. A 5% drop in revenue, depending on what type of retail business you are in, could be as catastrophic as a 90-plus percent drop in your bottom line. Okay, There are very, very few businesses that are so sensitive to changes in traffic. And then you put in COVID on top of it. I mean, you're talking about a change in traffic, which is cataclysmic. And what all these bankruptcies have shown is that it is wrong for these people to blame e-commerce as the cause of their demise. I think probably what you realize is many of these people were already in trouble and COVID was just the headlight that was needed to show how badly they were managed. So I think retail... I mean, in the U.S., for instance, I mean, retail is the biggest source of employment. So what you're going to see is also the impact of the fact that unemployment is still so high, not translating into retail demand. So many of these companies, even if they file for bankruptcy, they are not able to clean up their operations, will not recover very well.
0: Yeah, they're all struggling. And which leads me to, I think, to Molly, right, which is Molly, you're an incredible senior leader has worked at a number of different retailers and other places, and I've seen you do this. It just feels like fundamentally, these are leadership questions rather than technology or others. I mean, I I don't know of a single retail executive that hasn't been told or doesn't say that they need to change, but then they just can't do it. You've been in leadership, senior leadership roles for over 10 years now. How have you scaled these businesses? Because you've done such a good job of taking traditional businesses and then finding ways to really help them transform in a scalable digital way. How have you done that?
2: I think part of it is that people do need to realize that change can get messy. And a lot of people operate as such, as operators instead of visionary. I think during times of COVID especially, the one constant that I think executive leaders need to turn to is the customer they need to listen to their customer and they need to be able to be agile pivot quickly and not only leverage data but a little bit of gut has to come into play because we're in unprecedented times and you're going to have to test and learn experiment and there's no need to disrupt right now i don't think that's what customers are looking for i think they're looking for the essentials and the interesting thing is you know in my 10 years of experience Everyone always wanted to be a disruptor in the space. And I believe that you can turn a business around by just listening to the customer and respecting the team that you have at hand. Because if you don't have the talent and you can't build the talent, then you're not going to be able to turn around, listen to your customer and fix what's wrong within your business or innovate and come up with something new to appeal to a new market.
0: That's, that's really great. Because that, that is, I mean, t- how many times have all of us sat in in an executive meeting or a boardroom or what have you and gotten those customer surveys back or that insight back. And then everyone goes, yeah, that'd be great, but we've already spent X hundreds of millions of dollars on some platform, so we can't just switch gears, even though that's what the customer is asking for, or that's not in the IT roadmap yet, or whatever the other thousand excuses organizationally why you can't do what your customer's expecting you to do. So I really, really like that. But again, Molly, like you've done this, like what was it? Did you go back and say, no, 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 no. no? We need to actually reorganize around what the customer wants rather than what's operationally easy for us to do. How do you do that?
2: Funko was a place that I was able to quickly assess not only leadership, but talent on the floor and understand how everybody thinks, how they feel, what they do, and then kind of associate it with the projects that they have at hand to understand, do we actually have the right roadmap that is providing the right experience for what the customer is telling us? In marketing, there's lots of different ways you can figure out what the customer wants. It's what you do with that simple data to be able to turn it around. And there have been discussions at the table with IT or the operations person or even the CEO and the president to say, we may be going down this path of creating a new app but the customer is not asking for an app. They're just asking for free shipping. You know, it could be something that's, simple. that's free shipping. Like, why are we charging six ninety five dollars for shipping? Can we just check? Them? But Molly, we have a whole team that builds apps. Right. What are these I people going to do? You know, so sometimes just taking a step back and those simple, I mean, you could do it. Survey Monkey, right? They're cheap. Anybody can execute one. But it's the questions you ask the customer and it's the information you get back from them to be able to listen. To then to be able to carry forward how you're going to provide value and give a purpose to that customer so they make sure that they keep coming back. So they are a life customer.
0: Especially in a one that is not, you know, the core basic needs that you need to survive. Molly, can you give like a quick one minute or two minute overview of what Funko is for those that maybe not familiar?
2: Sure. Funko is a toy collectible company. They've been around for a little over 20 years. They started scaling around 2010 and they have a very core collector fan base that are called fanatics that collect these bobbleheads, so to speak. Some of the bobbleheads get anywhere up to $10,000 on the black market, i.e. eBay. Um, they're called flippers. So the one that I've seen kind of trailed the most is Headless Ned Stark for you Game of Thrones fans. (laughs) But uh, the idea is that there are rare chases, there's exclusive items, and Funko has over a thousand licenses. So um, depending on what your fandom is, whether you're sports, TVs, movies, what have you, Funko has probably made that particular license Um, anywhere from Bob Ross to Baby Groot. The headless Ned Stark. I mean, that's a pretty wide swing.
0: <laughs> that's a pretty really wide swing.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's awesome. So then, you know, with all of this change, because, you know, what might have seemed like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of these collectible things or I'm going to buy all of a sudden things that we thought were on the map for purchasing have shifted significantly. And so everyone's financial plans, both individually and in families, and then definitely on the retail side, have just gone out the window and having to respond to this. So, Patty, you've spoken about retailers hitting this panic button. What does that panic button mean? And what metrics should retailers be measuring to understand when
1: it's time to hit it? See, this builds on a bunch of research that I've done on this, which is looking at what happens in a crisis. And it actually starts with something that molly talks about which is you know everybody who's in the business of retail or even manufacturing is trying to figure out how badly am i going to be hit and what our research shows is the way to sort of get a sense of that impact is to actually drill down on consumer behavior okay and what we've shown repeatedly over time because we've looked at crisis now for over the past 60 plus years across god knows hundreds of countries which is where you realize crises are not that unusual. But what is fascinating is the impact in terms of how consumers react to a crisis is actually quite predictable. And so the way it works and the channels in which it sort of impacts businesses, whether it be retail or consumer, is the first impact that a consumer sees, whether it's a GFC or whether it's COVID, is what's going to happen to my wallet. And now, what you realize is not just looking at employment, even otherwise, even companies that are still working have asked people to take pay cuts. So, across the world, whether it's developed or developing, the customer's wallet actually has shrunk. And then, in crisis times, what customers actually do is to say, okay, fine, the wallet has shrunk. Now, how much of the wallet should I spend? And what you realize is, even in the US, where people typically don't save that much, if you looked at the savings data that you're getting from the Fed and others, the Americans are saving like they never saved before over the past few months. So what you will now see, you know, at one level, I'll see that there's an impact on GDP. And so that will obviously have an impact on spending. But the impact is going to be even worse than that because consumers are not spending all of their wallets. Even though the wallets have shrunk, they've actually moved some of that money away. And then it's after that that they're actually saying, whatever's left over now, how do I allocate it across the categories? And the beauty of it is the way consumers allocate whatever they decide to spend. Imagine you decided to spend 100 and it was a good year. Let's say you're looking at data March, April 2019. The way you allocate the 100 in March, April 2019 is actually very systematically different from the way an American household would allocate that money in percentage terms across the same basket of categories okay so for instance what you will see is and you will see this in the early data that you're beginning to see i mean the worst head categories in retail are going to be categories like the ones you mentioned it's going to be apparel it's going to be furniture it's going to be auto arts it's going to be restaurants in fact even gasoline stations so what you realize is If you're a retailer operating in these categories, realize you're going to get hammered and see if you can prepare and anticipate it and then be ready for it, as opposed to saying, oh my God. Whereas by the same token, what you'll realize is there are actually certain other categories in retail which actually may not get hammered as badly or may even do better. You're already beginning to see it, right? I mean, supermarkets, health and personal care. I mean, funnily enough, and some of the categories you guys have been in, building and garden, Okay, and even e-commerce. Okay, so what you realize is consumer behavior in a crisis is actually predictable. So before retailers start hitting the panic button saying slash, 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 what you realize is not everyone is going to be uniformly impacted. Some are going to be impacted very badly. Some are going to be impacted, but maybe the impact is mild. But what they need to do is then to use these insights to figure out what do I need to do to manage the detail. This is where what you, Kyle and Moe talked about is where the leaders come in. So, look, this is what we need to focus on. These are the things we need to be taking care of, whether it be in the front office, in the store, or whether it be in the back office, in our warehouses, or whether it be in our relationships with our suppliers, with our bankers, with our landlords, because it's about figuring out how you manage across this. This is what makes retail so interesting, but also makes retail so complex. It's not just about getting the product right.
0: I'm a recovering uh, marketing researcher myself and uh, that's how I started my career. When I was working for a large retailer, I wouldn't say which one, um, we were selling large, I guess, non-discretionary devices, like large lawnmowers and people were, would buy them and then return them very quickly. And so the return rates were really high. And when we did the consumer research, we were like, we found that it was, I like it in the store. Then I go home and I have to explain it. Why I bought this really big thing, even though I thought it was really cool, but then realized when I got home, it wasn't really that necessary. Then I return it because my significant other starts asking me questions about it. And I can't really defend it. So what we did was we changed the marketing messaging to be more about like confirmatory. Like, yeah, you bought this because this is cool. This actually does really work really well. And we'll make your life easy. And we ship the messages to really help them defend the purchase when they got home, which is different than get them over the thing because it was consumer. And then, and then uh, returns went way down uh, back to where they should be. And so, like, to your point, I I always took that as, um, you know, Dan Ariely, if if for those that are listening who haven't read Predictably Irrational, that should be a mandatory read for anybody, anywhere, but specifically in retail. And it's exactly what you just said, Patty. People are irrational, seemingly, but they're predictably irrational. And so we can understand what those cycles are and get behind it. But one of those things is there is if somebody hates something or shifted dramatically, there's usually an opposite feeling where they want something really badly. And if you can get ahead of that, you can do all kinds of important things. But it's once again, it's it's just having that consumer insight and then being willing to do something about it. And so, so many of these categories you just talked about, Patty, are really fragile right now. Do you think it's just because they're in those categories or is it just because those categories happen to be really rigid in their thought process and in their execution? Which one do you think it is?
1: See, what we see is the following, okay? And again, this is something that I suspect Molly will also be speaking about, which is crisis come crisis go, okay? And what you need to realize is to deal with the crisis, you may need to make cuts and you know do what is needed to make sure you keep the business afloat. But the mistake many organizations make is to say, cut, 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 where you cut literally all of the muscle. And what the data shows is after a the crisis, there's always a recovery and the recovery is actually quite robust. So even after, COVID, There will be an economic recovery. My feeling is that, you know, it'll take longer for that to actually take off in a big scale because the hit that COVID has in terms of unemployment is nothing compared to what we've seen in GFC. It's a lot worse. So the rebound will happen, but the rebound will be slower. But what we know for sure is consumer expenditure will bounce back. And in fact, some of those categories where the bounce back will be the strongest will be things like durable goods. Okay, what we also see in our research is, you know, there are certain categories which get hammered pretty badly in a crisis and then they don't recover all the way back to where they were before. And I suspect one of the easiest places to see it is probably apparel. People realize in a crisis that, you know, I don't need to buy clothes every Two weeks. I don't need to buy jeans. I don't need to buy t-shirts. I don't need to buy this. I don't need to buy that. And then realize quite afterwards that you know they look just as beautiful as they did buying once every two months as opposed to once every two weeks. And you know some of those categories typically do not recover, but you know things like durable goods get get hammered. They recover very fast, and you saw this in today's report too, right? I mean, some of the categories leading to that 17.7% hike were in fact automobiles.
0: It's interesting because this is a unique time where this is, as far as I know, the only time where there's been a global, let's hit the pause button. It wasn't caused by some, you know, credit default swaps that went awry or subprime lo- loans or what have you. This is, this was an intentional, let's shut things down for medical reasons. And it wasn't a war. I mean, there's, it's a very unique kind of a time. So it's going to be interesting to see how it comes up. And one of the things that's really interesting too, is all of this stuff is also, causing some interesting partnerships too. You know, Walmart, who I would say isn't all, I'm an, uh, an alum of Walmart, a full disclosure, but Walmart has done some amazing things lately, like partnering with ThreadUp on doing resale on clothing and other things. And just announced yesterday their partnership with Shopify, which if I was any other large retailer that should send, you know, chills down my spine as to uh, what's going to happen next, because you just can't plan this stuff out. Who's partnering in, with who and who's going to do what? So I think the partnerships is probably the next thing. What do What do you think about that, Molly? What do you think? Is that is because I know building partnerships has been a huge thing for you.
2: Yes, I definitely think building partnerships is a new way to understand a different customer with a business together. I think it's also a way for businesses to fast track if they don't have. Um, you know, so Shopify is a great platform for third-party marketplaces. Amazon you know, tends to think they have cornered the market on that. And so it's a strategic shift for Walmart to partner with Shopify to say, hey, we can be your source as well. And that's a, another way that they can target a consumer to have better acquisition and then create better retention in the long run if they're creating a better experience.
0: No, totally. I, I'm, I'm grateful to be on a, quite a few boards and d- differing you know, sizes and things. And one, one, of my, one of my always advices is, what do we do? Well, my advice is whatever market that you want to go into, you go to the number two or number three player and you go to them. Those people have the resources and are excited and are hungry to do something different. The one that's at the top has so much more, at least they feel, to lose. Um, so that makes sense, like a Shopify who's massive is a little more hungry probably than Amazon to make those changes, right? And would be a a good partner.
2: Well, and I think that kind of goes to, if you retain or partner with proven knowledge, then you can move faster. Whereas if you try and homegrown it yourself, you know, you you can build a system that is not exactly gonna be authentic and move as fast as you want. Oh
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. You could never, the smartest people don't work at your company. (laughs) You can't hire all the smartest people, right? It's impossible.
1: But, you know, Kyle, Molly, this is where it gets interesting, which is, I think what COVID has presented is a scenario which is something many leaders are not used to, which is to say, look, you know, it becomes much easier for somebody to take your business out in today's COVID world. And if you don't start thinking about what those might be, somebody else will do it for you. And that's when they suddenly become open to a whole new universe of possibilities. Believe me, without COVID, if the U.S. economy was still galloping as well as it was in 2019, many of these moves would probably not have happened. The the, the interesting thing, and I don't know if the
0: two of you have seen this too, but in the candid moments with executive leaders in a wide variety of sectors, but specifically in retail, they'll say, I know I need to change. I know we, whatever organization they work for, needs to change dramatically. I just don't know how to do it. One of the things that's pretty clear is that those that are in senior leadership positions, especially in brick and mortar retail, are there because they were naturally selected to be the best in that system. They rose through the ranks because they were good at that. And so they get to the top and the world around them has changed dramatically or it's changing. And they, it looks almost like they just do not know what to do. It feels very much like natural selection playing in the wrong way. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? Do you think those senior leaders just have grown up so much in the old way that they just cannot think or act differently?
1: Kyle, you sort of uh, put your finger on something that I've actually been working on with a couple of colleagues here. And you're actually going to come out with this research in the form of a book later in the fall. And the whole premise of this is the fact that you know most leaders that you talked about are leaders who are actually bloody good at doing. And it's a skill that's not easy to learn, but they learn it and then they figure out how to be good at it and they train a whole bunch of leaders to help them do the same. And what you need now, and especially in today's world, I mean, this was already happening with the spread of technology, with digital, social, AI, IoT, et cetera, et cetera, is what you need is a new capability in leaders, which is to be able to dream to start thinking about how might the confluence of all of these forces, whether it be technology, whether it be COVID, might actually totally disrupt my business. So our thesis in this research is to say the way to get leaders to start thinking about this is not, okay. now what do I do with this business? How do I go forward? Because then they're going to think the same way they do before. It's actually to get them into a very different mindset to say, look, how would somebody go and kill my business? What could be done to disrupt my business? And it's a very uncomfortable thing to ask. But it turns out once you sort of get them somewhat comfortable and then you put them together with a group of senior leaders, but leaders who are from completely different businesses who don't have the same hangups, who don't have the same biases, then they become a lot more open to this kind of thinking. Then you need to figure out, okay, what does this mean in terms of how what is gonna be version 2.0 of my business, what is gonna be version 3.0 of my business, but your point is well taken, it starts with the mindset, okay? Once you get the mindset to change, then they become a lot more open to be able to think about these disruptive possibilities. Otherwise, without the change in mindset, they're gonna be like the deer in the headlights. It's something that I spent a whole career working on, which
0: is how do you help large organizations transform? And all of my research when I was studying this academically it was all about storytelling the dream thing is exactly right we did uh, molly and i did this at lowe's and then later at funko too it's all about the story i mean one of the most revealing questions is to ask somebody uh, ask a senior leader what is the strategic narrative of your organization what is the narrative who is the protagonist who is the antagonist what do we fight Like, what, what is it well, who, what is it very few people can answer those questions your dream cannot be a two by two grid i would say it's gotta be something bigger than that. People don't sign up for a two by two grid. We're in quadrant two and we, dang it, we wanna be in quadrant three, you know, before the, before the other guys, that is not very inspiring. You know, that's not what people sign up for. That's not how I remember John F. Kennedy's favorite famous moonshot speech. And so, you know, I, it's, it's well taken, you know, I, for all this disruption, there's so much opportunity, you know, all this COVID, everything, there's so much opportunity. And again, being on all these boards during, during all of this madness, it's so interesting. I would bounce from call to call where literally the one call was like, ah, doom and gloom. It's over next call. Oh my gosh. So much opportunity, same sector, just the mindset was the only thing that was different. And I just find that really fascinating, which is like another thing, Molly too, you know, you've done this again, you've been doing this for over a decade what are your and you've seen these cyclical changes happen, and those things that people used to talk about, you know, like oh, we got to move to digital, is now finally becoming the real norm. What are your predictions now as you sit here in 2020 uh, for the near future? Where are things going? What should people be preparing for?
2: Well, I think it's interesting to both your points talking about dreaming and visionary leaders versus doers versus strategists. I always remember. <laughs> have you guys seen the movie multiplicity
0: yeah is that michael keaton
2: michael keaton you know he tries to clone himself so he can do more and he clones himself to this one you know one of one of these people's in the kitchen and he has to fold a sandwich in tin foil, and he goes tuck tuck fold <laughs> and then he basically keeps going ttf over and over and over again like it's the sandwich and every time i'm sitting with a couple different leaders in a room people process technology, PPT. I just think multiplicity, like this is so boring. I'm like, nobody cares. (laughs) um, It's just fascinating to me that I think, I do think that people do have to dream a little bit. I think as far as digital transformation is, I do think that people are dreaming about it, but I also think that they're putting it into that grid that you talked about, Kyle, or putting it into people process technology and they're not clearly identifying their pain points up front. They're not assessing what benefit will it bring, not only to the organization, but to the customer. And I do think that people need to realize where is their strategic starting point. Meaning if you're not Amazon, don't try and start and be like Amazon, you know, tick off small wins to be able to plan ahead so you can scale your solution. And then this is where I do truly believe that you do need to retain proven knowledge. This is where you do need to build talent within organization, or outsource for it, because you know you can't homegrown digital transformation. And you can surely test and learn, but I do believe that it's something where you can build a new website and understand who the customers are and the traffic that's coming in. But if you didn't, you know, configure checkout right, well, now you've all this traffic to your website, and people can't check out the way they want to check out. So that was something that we certainly ran into at one of the businesses that I was at previously with Lowe's. And, you know, we were kind of sitting there all scratching our heads. Well, what happened? We didn't think about Apple Pay, right? That people get so locked into what the standards are for their people. What's the process? How do we practice it? What's our multi-year strategy that they just don't live in the now? And I think COVID is really bringing up that You need to live in the now. You need to figure out who are your loyal customers, who are your casual customers, who's coming in incidentally, and who is essential to be able to understand what motivates them to get them to a path to purchase.
0: That's really, that's all it is, right? If you're just asking those questions all the time, then the rest of it doesn't matter. I mean, how many dashboards... Have we all seen with this like longitudinal data about this or that? And everyone's like, oh, we're 2% two, two points off, 2.2% off. But then you get into, you're like, why do we even care about this? It's not even really leading towards action or to the things you just talked about, which then I think is really critical, Patty, to say like what business models, because we're talking so much about, and I think rightfully, you know, like what does our checkout look like? What does this look like? Things are changing and expectations are changing, but What hasn't really changed very much are business models. What business models do you believe will be most successful for retailers in this
1: future? See, I think you're already beginning to see it, right? I mean, if you step back and think about it, retail is actually a fairly simple business. It's about trying to figure out what is it that the customer wants and then making sure you sort of source it the right way and then do it in a way that you know you get the right results for the customer and you get the results that you need so if you think back retail is actually a very very simple business but i think what has happened over time is the way you go about doing it has been changing and so what technology is going to allow you to do is also think about what might be ways to sort of improve this I think Molly put it right. I mean, for people who think tomorrow the only way it's going to be all through platforms is probably incorrect. And I think what you're beginning to see is things that even Amazon is beginning to have problems with. So it's not clear that the online world is the only answer. And I think what we are beginning to realize and what consumers are also going to realize, I think one of the nice things about COVID is people started, said, OK, I want to do a lot of things online. And this was really bad in March, April. Go back to the same customers in May, June, the percentage of things that they want to do online has actually dropped. People like being able to go, being able to shop, being able to touch, being able to feel. And so I think all of those things will come back. And the customer, in a way, is probably going to be wiser in terms of saying, you know, what are things that COVID taught me that I could do differently, where I actually realized that different ways are actually better. And equally, they're beginning to realize what are some of the things that I missed about the old way. And I want to go back to them and probably be even more loyal to those ways of doing business than I was before. Because it took it away from me and I realized how useful it was. So to me, it's actually about reimagining the experiences in the light of what has happened in these months. And I think everybody is going to have to do the reimagination. It's not just the retailers, it's even the customers, it's the other stakeholders, the suppliers, etc. One other
0: one of the really interesting things, right? So retail is almost like the front for a whole ghost chain that people have no idea is going on behind the scenes, right? There's so much happening in order to get something to a store or get something even to your door when it's sent, right? And uh, all of these supply chain issues and things, I mean, it's been really interesting to watch how the ripple effect, good and bad, has happened pretty quickly. So then it, this gets into, you know, all this focus, Molly, like on going digital I, mean, I hear this all the time. Oh, well, we're just going to take our analog business. It <laughs> doesn't matter what it is. And we're just going to make it digital. We're going to throw it online. We're going to get an app and then boom, look at the spreadsheet. Look how we're going to scale. We're going to be so rich. I-, I can't tell you how many pitches that I get like that a day. And I'm sure you do too. So why for all of the talk about going digital, I've been in this game, the retail game for a while now, I've heard about going digital since I was an undergrad. Many, many years ago. And so, for all this talk about going digital, for someone who's actually done it, you've actually done this multiple times. What works? Like, what is going digital? What should it actually mean? What should you actually focus on in going, you know, quote unquote, digital?
2: I think, again, you first have to focus on what value are you going to bring to the customer by doing it because there's some companies that maybe shouldn't go digital they are an essential storefront they don't have the funds it's interesting i'm working with a company right now on the side and they do not have a digital footprint and they barely have a brand footprint and they are focused on what categories can they get into that are being deemed essential how do they integrate their systems what are their store standards Meanwhile, they have no idea what their awareness is, their purpose, their value, who their target customer is. So for me, going digital is, who is your target customer? Do you have a social platform? Can you gain insights off of that? Does your customer like to shop online? Do you have the operations to support it? So there is a little bit of foundational work that every company has to go through and then they really need to be a little bit more customer-centric so it holds them accountable. And by asking behavioral questions or understanding, to your point earlier, about what is company narrative, but what's the customer narrative, that's where you'll find out, okay, I can go digital by creating an e-commerce site, but really my customers are asking me for an app. So if you look at OfferUp, they don't have a, You know, e-com site that people go to. They leverage an app. Most recently at Funko, our customers were telling us they wanted a collector app, not even to buy. They just wanted to know the value of what their items were and they wanted to know where they could get it in retail because most of the exclusives and the chases were in retail and you couldn't get them online, so they had to go to a store. And so we did create an app tailored to the collector. And you know, in a matter of, I would say three months, there were already 5 million downloads. It's, it was insane. There were over 1 million unique people in it subscribed to our newsletter. And, you know, it was all because the love of these little bobbleheads that they wanted to collect. And our e-commerce site was not equipped for free shipping, it was not equipped with the entire product assortment. So if you think about trying to give the customer what they want, we, quote unquote, went partially digital to fulfill a need while we work on our back-end systems to create more of a better experience.
0: I love that. And those are just the basic questions, right?
2: I just think people need to realize what benefit are they going to bring. And going digital doesn't just mean, I think people immediately think e but there's other aspects to it. And what does it mean to your company? Like, how is it going to affect different organizations? You know, How are you going to work with operations? How are you going to work with sales? How are you going to work with the BI team? What if you don't even have any of those teams? Okay, Could you outsource it then? How are you going to analyze what's coming in? So I just think that people need to realize what benefit they're going to bring and they need to be authentic in how they do it because, again, that's, that's what's going to be presented to the customer.
0: Right. There's only so much room for error, as Patty said, too. There's, there's not a small things in the wrong direction can have catastrophic effects for sure. Well, I just wanted to say thank you both so much. This has been a great conversation. For me, I know there's a lot of great takeaways here, but I think for me, the top three takeaways would be retail is not dead. Rigid, old, boring retail is dead and dying. And so this has just sped up the uh, demise of those old categories and those rigid businesses. But retail is growing. People need it. They want it. They desire it. And the numbers today in the U.S. are showing that that's true, even in a pandemic. Another one is uh, just focus on the fundamentals. I mean, it's just basic, basic stuff, but but with all getting into the disruption and everything else, I think it was pretty clear in our conversation. We just have to focus on the fundamentals first of running a business. And then part of those fundamentals too, most people may not think of it, but that's partnerships. Who can you partner with and what kind of creative ways to get to where you want to need to go? And then the last one, which I really love from Patty, which is just to learn to dream. And that has to be a fundamental Again, a fundamental characteristic of a senior leader is the ability to be able to learn to dream and then to act on those dreams. And um, so I really appreciate everyone for joining today. Uh, there's so, I'm, so many other things to take away. Wanted to say again, there will be a number of things that we'll link to here that will share more information and more, more constructs and things that people can use to be able to take these insights and actually apply them. So thank you, Patty and Molly, for taking the time to talk with us. You can connect with them and then find those resources that I mentioned in this episode in the show notes or head over to su.org slash podcasts and we will see you next time.